Hey, God for Grown Up listeners, we'd like to invite you to join us for a special series led by Dr. Beatrice Lawrence about death and dying from a Jewish perspective. What do you plan to cover in this series? Well, Dan, I'm going to start actually working through texts in a chronological pattern. So we're going to start in the Bible and look at the experiences of people there dying and the different ideas about the afterlife that occur there. You're looking perplexed. Why would a person want to come to a Lenten series on dying? That sounds really depressing. Oh, I don't know, isn't it just interesting? It's like the weather, it happens to everyone. It's fundamentally a matter of meaning in human life, isn't it? What's going to occur? Yeah, this series will be offered at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It has five sessions, Wednesdays, March 4th to April 1st. 6 p.m. we start with a simple supper, 6.45 to 7.30 we have our program. There is no cost, all faiths are welcome. So we invite one and all to a conversation that, like the weather, affects everyone. (laughs) Hope to see you there. Lutheran liturgy is largely built on four pillars, right? We've got the gathering, the word, the meal, and the sending. Wait, let me write that down. (laughs) Take note. (laughs) I also think there's a discipline that aids that maturity in just going to church every Sunday, whether you feel like it or not. I love how the first guest of God for Grown Ups is the most controversial. (laughs) Here I have a pastor (laughs) who is telling me and, and all of you that in order to be mature in faith, you have to go to church weekly. Let's hope perhaps, for Star Wars quote. Star Wars quote. Perhaps I was going with I was going to with Luther that perhaps I may have been right at one point, but I am nothing otherwise than stinking maggot fodder. <laughs> yeah. So no Star Wars quote. <laughs> Welcome to God for Grownups. I'm Dan Peterson, pastor of Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. My co-host B. Lawrence is away this week, but I'm pleased to be joined by a special guest. My good friend, Pastor Mark Griffith of St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Bellevue. Mark, tell us a little about yourself. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me out today. This is fun. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I currently serve St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Bellevue. This is my third call to ministry. I've been in uh, Mount Si Lutheran out in North Bend. I served in Shelton, and um, I'm thrilled to be at St. Luke's in Bellevue. And you have, like... B and me, you have uh, some additional graduate work that you've done. Tell yeah, us so about beyond that. my uh, beyond my MDiv, which Lutheran pastors are required to have, I did a doctorate in ministry in semiotics and future studies with Len Sweet at George Fox, now Portland Seminary. And I met Mark about uh, ten years ago. We were at Holden Village, which is a Lutheran retreat center in the middle of Washington State, and I was teaching a, a group of uh, high school youth on the topic of miracles. And I remember watching Dan, we had not met yet, and I was watching Dan work with this group of high school students, and he was pushing them, asking hard questions and making some serious uh, theological work out of this conference. And I just remember, man, that guy's amazing. And we've struck up this fast friendship and been friends for about a decade now. I remember afterward, Mark and I spent probably several hours in the dining hall not joined by anyone else, <laughs> talking about the theology of the cross in the Lutheran tradition and, and what it means to talk about God if our starting point is God's humiliation, as it were. 
Well, it got pretty nerdy pretty quickly, but it yes. was a wonderful conversation. Good times. It always and does. And then remember I had you out to Shelton and you did this adult ed for me out at the uh, the congregation at Faith Lutheran in Shelton. Yeah. And uh, people didn't leave. I guess that's a miracle. Maybe one or two. One lady was pretty did. angry, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if I, I mean, if I can do, if I can just anger one person per speaking engagement, then I'm happy. Yeah. To be fair, it was it was a lot of anger. <laughs> that's appreciate the qualification. Let let me just be clear. It wasn't my anger. <laughs> no, it not was your somebody anger. angry with me. It's it's happened before. I, I it has happened before. But also since then, I spoke on uh, Paul Tillich. I wrote a book on yes. Tillich, the theologian, a couple years ago. And if you've ago. not read Dan's book on Paul Tillich, you really owe yourself to do that. It's really, it puts Tillich in a really readable format. It really is truly brilliant. So Paul Tillich was a mid-century, mid-20th century theologian who was, for his time, considered the most dangerous theologian alive. And he, he essentially uh, bore down when it comes to the issue of faith and opened up the possibility that a, a mature faith, a dynamic faith, could involve doubt. And so when I read Tillich as an undergrad, I was, I was, I felt like I was in solidarity with him. That I, here was a, here was a Lutheran theologian or a great theologian across the traditions in Christianity who, who was affirming my own experience. And so because of that, I was, I was interested in Tillich for, for many years after, and eventually decided to write a book that would introduce to a, a larger audience his basic ideas. And for my congregation, and for me personally, but you know, for the people that I serve, that concept that doubt is not antithetical to faith, but can ha- perhaps be an ally to faith, was, for some of the people in this adult ed forum, life-changing. I mean, they saw that as a gospel moment. It was this watershed of good news that they had never heard it that way before. And all of a sudden, to not see the things that they doubted as an enemy to what they believe, but somehow maybe helping them refine and reform what they believe or articulate more clearly what they believe uh, was very helpful. And I... I've come to see doubt not even only as an ally to faith, but as uh, an expression of faith, and I see it nice, yeah. throughout Scripture. I see yeah. it in—I mean, the very fact that Jacob is—that Israel is named—how uh, does this go in Genesis? Israel is the name that Jacob is given because he wrestles with God. Does that sound right? Yeah, at the river there. He, uh, yeah. At the Jacob. Isn't it right. Jacob? I, don't I think so. How pronounce that? Yeah. yeah. Um, he wrestles with God, and yeah— yeah, so I mean, there's a sort of an archetype for faith right there, sure, sure. and then uh, after that, you have a number of prophets, including even Jesus himself, who is, uh, according to Matthew and Mark, uh, the gospels of these they they tell us that his last words before death were in the form of a question: "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And I kind of think that by allowing doubt to live that way, it opens up um, a much healthier pathway of curiosity that is often blocked. And I think allowing people to be curious and ask questions about the scripture or doubt things about the scripture or doubt things about their experience, that really, um, I think, makes faith more meaningful and durable, especially when times are hard. And, as we're going to be talking about today, that arguably makes faith more mature. So, when we're talking about doubt, I think in in this sense at least, it's not the kind of skeptical doubt that essentially is synonymous with indifference. It's a kind of, Tillich calls it a passionate doubt or an interested doubt. 
the kind of doubt that reflects an interest in the in the topic itself, not the kind that that turns away from it indifferently. Yeah, and that doubt is not the synonymous with apathy, right? I mean, I think this doubt is an active pressing into uh, curiosity or um, learning more, um, not just a, nah, I don't care, or, oh, I doubt it, kind of right. a, a flippant kind of. Right, you ask questions because you're interested in the topic. Yeah, yeah. And so it comes from there. You're casually skeptical or right. don't really care about the substance of what you're thinking about. Right. And one of those, uh, one of the ways that that became, that kind of faith became apparent to me was in a sermon that Tillich wrote called In Thinking Be Mature. And he uses as his primary biblical text, the Apostle Paul, his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, where Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. And so that becomes the point of departure for Tillich to explore what it means to be mature, not only in one's thinking, but also in one's faith. And I guess that's the question that I want to pose to you. And that is, how would you define a mature faith? You know, I think initially I would say that's, you know, probably different for everyone. Um, But I think if I were to think about... um, what are the hallmarks of mature faith? Or if maybe, you know, if I imagine I had encountered somebody and I was going to walk away from that encounter and say, oh, there was somebody who was really mature in their faith. What were those things that I would look for or um, see in, in, the, in their way they handled themselves, the way they talked about their faith, their world, and how those things engage together? Um, I think for me, the one of the initial uh, hallmarks or marks that I would look for would be humility in this kind of sense of I have a a degree of certainty, but I'm also open. Um, And then I'm also not worried about me being right, but somehow collectively working together for something that is bigger and true. So the Lutheran historian Martin Marty has a nice phrase that reflects, I think, what you're sure. suggesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he calls it convinced openness. Lovely. I and love that phrase. Yeah, I like that too. And I think that's really been sort of the source of uh, the inspiration for this very podcast. We call ourselves God for Grownups. We call the, the conversation, rather, God for Grownups because we want to share and reach out to people who are indeed convinced and yet open at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to, instead of like ossifying your faith and keeping it this rigid structure, there's a fluidity to it. And sometimes doubt, I think, or questions move the fluidity or the sense of our faith in different directions. Kind of greases the wheel of faith. Yeah, Yeah. doubt may be the lubricant of moving our faith (laughs) forward. Well, okay. (laughs) But I think I like the way I said it better, but okay. (laughs) I think there's a a humility in... um, can you grease a wheel, though? I mean, is well, what's, maybe the, what's the right phrase? The bearings grease the skids. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't sound <laughs> maybe right. Maybe we digressed. <laughs> so, so, so a mature faith is the kind of faith that reflects both conviction as, as well as fluidity. I like that word. Yeah, an openness, but I think that necessitates a humility. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have to say, like, you know, this isn't all about me. This is, um, I'm, I'm open to being changed. I'm I could be wrong. Moved. I could, uh, horror of horrors, I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or I was wrong. 
I prefer just not being right <laughs> as opposed to saying I was wrong. Right. <laughs> okay, that's a nuanced difference, but <laughs> sure. But I also think, I mean, building on that, I think curiosity then is also a sign of mature faith in that you are, you're open, you're convinced, but you're open, and that maybe fuels this holy or healthy curiosity to keep thinking about Scripture in new ways or exploring Scripture in new ways, exploring different cultural pieces of our lived experience in new ways and how those things might connect. I think that curiosity is... Um, is beautiful and can be a, a mark of a, a mature faith. There's a passage, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus talks about how children are the ones who will enter the kingdom of God. And I think I often think that we misconstrue that passage by by pointing out that children need to submit, need to be obedient. But that's not what children are. I think children uh, as as I know from growing up and from occasionally, particularly in a worship service when we have a children's sermon, children strike me as being full of wonder and oh, yeah. constantly questioning. I mean, you're, the, oh, you're yeah. a father of, yeah. of, of three children. Would, would you agree with that? Do you think yeah. that wonder and curiosity is sort of fundamental to where they are and who they are at this point Absolutely. in their lives? Absolutely, built in, yeah. I, but, and I was curious, you know, the passage that you read from Paul, I think is, is in, in some way held in tension by that passage mm-hmm. from Matthew, you know, that Paul talks about putting away the things that are childish, and then Jesus is elevating a child as a model of faith. Yeah. And I think... The maturity piece in that is recognizing what Jesus is talking about as admirable in the life of a child, right. as opposed to being childish. Right. And raising three little kids of my own, you see that um, wonder and awe and um, curiosity about the world. And I, I would say that's what Jesus is pointing to. My daughters, I've got two girls and a little boy, and watching them grow and learn in faith and wrestle with these questions... Um, one of my daughters just learned about mummies at school, and now she's wondering about how Jesus could actually come back to life. And so we're having these conversations about mummies and, you know. We'll have to have a future conversation on the <laughs> resurrection. Another conversation. But then. The, um, the mummy Jesus. Mummy Jesus. Or zombie Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. First fruits of zombie apocalypse. But uh, they also have this just kind of beautiful curiosity and innocence. Um, one of the, I think, horrible things that's happening in our schools right now is they do shooting drills. So, like, what happens if a, an active shooter comes into the elementary school? Um, and so my middle daughter was talking about how they had a shooter drill. And um, the euphemisms that they use are just gut-wrenching. I mean, they say, yeah, if stuff comes flying through the windows, then we know to get to our cubbies. I mean, and you know, stuff comes flying through the windows. They're talking about bullets, bullets. right? I mean, this is horrifying. Right. But we're doing this Advent table prayer, right? And um, she said, so I just sat in my cubby and I said my Advent table prayer. And she felt safe, but for, she felt comforted by that. And I thought there's, so just like thinking about the the wonder of a child able to bring that um, and it wasn't childish, I don't think. Um, I think there was just this kind of acceptance and openness, and she wasn't making any, you know, absolutist theological claims or anything like that. She was just 
this prayer helped me in that time. And I thought, oh, there's something wonderful about that. I'm trying to imagine what an absolutist theological claim would be from coming from a child. Coming from a six-year-old? <laughs> I, I don't know. You're a father. I'm not. I don't know these things. But I, but I do think that you're, you're on to something here when you talk about how, on the one hand, Jesus could be lifting up certain qualities— of being a child, like wonder, awe, and curiosity. Yeah, On the yeah, other yeah. hand, Paul could be lifting up admiral qualities of being an adult, but obviously there are things that we do want to leave behind. I mean, I think of the the terrible twos yeah, of, yeah. of rants, and yeah. when I was a kid, my my mom used to always say, don't hang on me. My brother and, and I would just hang on her in yeah. the grocery store, wanting this, wanting that, and we'd have to go out to the car and and, and sit, sit by ourselves <laughs> in the car. Bad past and, man. That's right. <laughs> and, so, and so obviously there are things in childhood that we want to leave behind, but I think what's unfortunate is that one of those things that we don't is, and I would agree with you, is is a mark of mature faith, and that is this kind of wonder, awe, and curiosity. And then, like, I also think a sense of play, too. If you watch kids at play, um, they enter into this alternative space, and they create the rules, and they have this whole order from... And it, I mean, gosh, I mean, I was a kid, but I just don't remember that, right? I just, I mean, maybe I do on some level, but like watching them do it and play out on the playground, um, they enter into this whole what's, thing. What's the equivalent of that in being an adult? I mean, obviously, oh, we man, can't go out to know. a playground. <laughs> I guess maybe we could try. Yeah. <laughs> we look pretty weird this I'm afternoon. Sure. I'm <laughs> sure. Two dudes doing in the rain. That's right. <laughs> so, so what is the equivalent of play? I. For an adult, I think in some way that's what worship is about. It's about play in uh, in uh, in kind of entering the drama of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is talking about, you know, the, the kingdom of God, I mean, in some way there's an element of playfulness in that that kids just get. Give I mean, me an example in church. I mean, so I, I if I go with you here, it's it's kind of like okay, I can see where we sort of suspend everyday expectations and rules when we are in this sort of liminal space yeah, together. Yeah. But but what beyond that would be considered play in a worship I service? don't think about this, like, worship about this exclusively, but I kind of like to think about worship as rehearsing the kingdom of God. The Lutheran liturgy is largely built on four pillars, right? We've got the gathering, the word, the meal, and the sending. Wait, let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, take note. <laughs> so we've got those basic kind of four pillars that we organize our worship around. They call it the ordo. The ordo. I remember that yeah. from seminary. Yeah, that's right? in there somewhere. Yeah. Right. So if you think about the rhythm of our worship service at the end, probably I've, I can't remember who said this first. This isn't original with me. But at the beginning of the worship service, we're the gathering of the sent ones, right? And so stick with me. I know you're, this is going to be confusing here for a second. So at the beginning of the worship service, it's the gathering. And everybody gathers together after a week of being apart. So we gather together. And then we go through this worship service together where we we hear the word of God. We're fed at the table. We share the peace. And I think that's one of the most profound things we do. We rehearse sharing the peace in that moment of worship. We rehearse reconciliation. So that when we're out into the world, we know how to do this. You know, we it's not just the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> it's the uh, middle of the service. But it's like we 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 share a meal together in rehearsing so that when we share a meal with others during the week, we know how to expect God's presence in the midst of that worship in the midst of that meal. We we rehearse sharing the peace so that when we see each other in the grocery store, we know how to 
do this kingdom of God. Um, and then at the end of the worship service, we're sent. And so it's the sending of the gathered ones. And so we live our week then between being gathered and sent in this liturgical rhythm. So rehearsing the kingdom of God is more than just that hour on Sunday, but that hour on Sunday is the rehearsal that informs our kingdom living throughout the week. Interesting. And so the liturgy I really like is much that. bigger than just that gathering word meal sending. Right. That's the rehearsal. The liturgy then is the uh, the lived weekly, daily, at work, at school, at play, kind of home, life, office, whatever. That's the enacting of the liturgy that we've practiced on Sunday. Okay. And so maybe in the practice, there's something of play, right? I'm thinking of certain moments in the service where we let go a little. One of those, if it's done right, is the children's sermon. Yeah. Where we're invited essentially to to be childlike as we consider a a problem together with the children who are up up at the front of the of the sanctuary. Yeah, and I would imagine that play could be also expressed through music. It could be expressed through prayer. Yeah. But I'm just I'm thinking out loud. I haven't thought of play, and I we have a number of other things we want to talk about when it comes to qualities of a mature sure. faith, but. But yeah, but it, I think play is important, and I think also play, I don't mean play necessarily as like a game or silly or fun even necessarily. I right, think. because we don't want to mix fun and worship. And worship, no. Never. Yeah, it should never. It Neither should of us do that ever. stern right? and disciplinary. Dower. Yes. The, I mean, but there's something about play as entering into the life of the imagination that is... Um, I think what Jesus is talking about when he's lifting up children as examples of models of faith. I see. That's great. I don't so know. so play as as kind of being open to imagining other ways of being, other ways of seeing. Well, don't we kind of have to suspend norms if we're going to imagine the kingdom of God? Right. I mean, we're talking about grace and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation, and we kind of have to suspend the norms of the world around us as we... Uh, seek to embody and enact that kingdom around us. So at its best, worship gives us a per- kind of permission to to imagine yeah. an alternative to, say, the present state of things or the future state of things, such yeah. that the present state of things could be, especially now, conflict, disharmony, the complete inability for people to hear one another across the political aisle. Yeah, that polarization is just killer. Absolutely, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So... so Play could be the the those that that aspect of worship whereby we imagine ourselves and our relationships with other people yeah. differently, and then we're invited to go out and and take what we imagined and incarnate it, incarnate make it, it real. Exactly, that's great. Yeah, and kids can do that. I mean, they can just slip into these roles and suspend their norms, and it's it's amazing to to watch that. So you and I, apart from this episode, we're talking about another mark of maturity which would be going to church. Yeah. And I, I think, so here we are in Seattle, one of the most unchurched regions of the country, the Pacific Northwest, and my, my good friend Mark is talking about worship attendance and maturity together. Yeah, How would you make absolutely. a case for that being an expression of maturity? I think a mature, somebody that's mature in faith has the capacity to go to church and participate fully in the life of a worshiping community because it shapes them, it forms them, but it's it's a, it's a, almost beyond uh, what's in it for me even. And then it's like, 
I think a mature, somebody that's mature in faith knows that participating in a worship community is beyond just the entertainment value of going to church. Right. Or, or getting something out of it, like you said, and right, just being yeah. about me. So I, I mean, it's I think about Paul and his, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That I think of Paul when he talks about in Galatians about how we are called to share one another's burdens. And that to me goes beyond the kind of consumerist mentality that you're, that you're challenging. But I also think there's a discipline that aids that maturity in just going to church every Sunday, whether you feel like it or not. There's this, there's a rigor and there's a discipline that I see in people that I would consider mature in faith. And they just go to church, whether they, you know, feel like that sermon is going to be amazingly inspirational, whether the hymns are going to be, you know, the organ is going to get, the organist is going to nail it, right? I mean, there's something beyond that that is, that's important for them to, to participate in. I love how the first guest of God for grownups is the most controversial. <laughs> the Here I have a pastor <laughs> who is telling me and, and all of you that in order to be mature in faith, you have to go to church weekly. I can imagine somebody really pushing back against that. And yeah saying, well, I know plenty of people who don't go to church who are mature and perhaps spiritually mature. How would you, how would you respond to that kind of understandable reaction? I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time with the spiritual but not religious crowd in some ways. I mean, a lot of, I've got a lot of friends that are spiritual but not religious, and I, I understand that impulse. I really, really do. Um, but there is something lovely and maturing in maybe retaining you i don't you can even retain a sense of that kind of wildness that a lot of my spiritual but not religious friends really enjoy about their sense of spirituality i mean it's not constrained or in a box but then there's this there's this discipline that about going to church on a regular consistent basis and i wonder i wonder then if, if the the discipline is is also really a commitment and that Commitment is an example of mature relationships. Of well, I would say someone who is capable of committing is someone who is mature. So when you have an argument, for example, with a friend or a family member, a mature person is going is going mm-hmm. to say, after perhaps hopefully taking some time and thinking about it, let's reset. Let's come back together and see if we can iron out what what went wrong and how we can move forward. Yeah. That to me implies a kind of um, maturity when it comes to commitment. And I think the alternative is, well, I didn't like what this pastor said or that pastor said this Sunday, and so I'm not going back, or I don't get anything out of it. And I often I often think two things. I think, number one, there are some times where we need to listen to that voice. Yeah, totally, there are, right. yeah. just because... This doesn't mean you go to any church, but I think sometimes you might go to a church where the pastor is preaching something that's really uh, offensive or oppressive, and you or maybe don't want harmful. Maybe harmful, yeah. yeah. And so you don't want to be, you don't want to put yourself in, in no. that kind of situation permanently. But at the same time, I think I guess I wonder if mature faith is not only is is not ultimately about what's important or what what's what's in it for me, but also it's about how can I be there to help others. And yeah. I don't I, I say that hesitantly these days because I don't want to think or to invite others to 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 think with me that that being there for others is something that we do at the expense of ourselves. We don't oh, right. we don't want to be yeah, doormats. And I've right. I, I've wrestled with that myself, not like I'm Mother Teresa or anything, but or Father Teresa, I guess. But I don't <laughs> I 
I guess I want to find a way to balance the two where yeah. we honor the fact that we do need to take care of ourselves, but we recognize that that's only a means to an end. The end is the neighbor. Yeah. And the neighbor is met, of course, in the world, but also in community. Yeah. And there's something about committing to that community. And again, not in a way that's going to be like, you know, perpetuating trauma right. or harm. Or, I mean, if you're a part of a toxic congregation, I would say find one that's not. I mean, right. that's not the, the commitment that I'm talking about. But um, just that commitment to that community and kind of these are these are my people. These are my values. And this is how we live that out. And then just having that commitment to to doing that. Um, I think there's a case to be made. And I know that there are, even in my own congregation, um, people who don't really believe much of what we're talking about at all, but they come every every Sunday as often as they're able, because there's just something important about being a part of this community. There's something important about doing this together and whether that's with their spouse or, you know, something, uh, that connects them to that congregation. Um, so I don't think it means, you know, when I say regular church attendance, I don't mean, you know, that you've got to become a biblical scholar and a super Christian and this kind of, that's not what I'm, there's just this sense of rigor and, and commitment that becomes important to people that I see that I would consider mature. We have a guy in my congregation who is quite vocal about his atheism. <laughs> nice. And Every congregation should have a good atheist. That's right. <laughs> and I, for me, I, I kind of, I treat that as, as I guess something we should be proud of as a as a church. And what I find so fascinating about him is recently there was a a meeting, one of one of many meetings at my church, in this case it was a church council meeting, and one of our other members is in need and I shared that with the group and he was the first wow. to to say he would he would yeah. take care of that. And I thought to myself, that's amazing. And I, I mean, I'm sure uh, there are others who were seated around the table who would have stepped up uh, as he did. And that's also amazing. But I was just really impressed that it, it didn't even take him a second. He just said, just I'll jump do to it. it. Yeah. yeah. And I work really hard as a pastor to cultivate a community where people like that, that we would maybe even self-identify as atheist, um, feel welcome. Welcomed, exactly. And that doesn't mean that I am not Christian. That doesn't mean that I am, you know, I, I don't speak about Christ or the particularities of what we believe. Um, but I think the more authentically I articulate those particularities, they know right where we are and they're more able to, to authentically join us, even though they don't always agree with those particularities. I guess the kind of atheist I would want in my church is the kind who is curious and open. It's sort of like the 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 flip side of so this person of, of what we were talking about actually it's kind of the same, same it's, kind of it's thing not even the flip side a mature atheist. It's, <laughs> it's a mature uh, I would welcome conversation with a mature atheist, the kind who is who is has his or her own convictions yeah. but at the same time is open to uh, to alternative points of view and perhaps to even changing those convictions likewise right. the christian in that conversation i would like to think with a mature faith is able to withstand the kind of yeah. rigorous challenge that an atheist brings to the table i think of a, a line from a mid 20th century theologian named h richard niebuhr he says, uh, a faith unwilling to question, or something to this degree, a faith unwilling to question is a shaky thing indeed. And uh, I, I yeah. think to myself, yeah, that's, totally. that's, yeah. that's exactly right. It's the, it's the, the brittle 
precarious kind of faith that is unwilling to question, but the kind that and it's the that most is, fragile, is, ironically, too. Yeah, I mean, it breaks under. Yeah, that's why you used the word certainty before. I I prefer conviction, yeah. and the reason I yeah. do, I mean, I that that line at least in the New Revised Standard Version translation of the New Testament of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eight, where Paul says, "For I am convinced." I think yeah. that's a preferable translation than I for certain. I am certain. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, because there's conviction still there's a modesty, yeah, 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 which yeah. takes us kind of full circle. We've talked about curiosity, yeah. and humility yeah. as qualities of mature faith, and we've talked about commitment as well. If yeah. you were to add one more before we close, what would it be? I think along those lines is just able to avoid absolutes. Um, the further I've gone in my career in ministry and in, in my own personal life of faith, I've really become allergic to absolutes. And it, it kind of makes me um, bristle when I hear sp- people speaking in just these really absolutist terms, like, I would never do that, or this, it can only be this way. If, uh, if you pick those hymns, I'm not coming to church that Sunday. Um, so it can be about petty things, it can be about big things, but I think there's also a, um, an openness and a humility built into the practice of avoiding absolutes. And when you do come across that mentality, how do you respond to it? Because it is, I think you talked about being allergic to it. I would say, yes, there is lots to be allergic to in our culture today when <laughs> yeah, it comes to, to, to absolutes. And so I, yeah. I guess I want to know, and, and there may be times even where some would argue that a kind of humble well, conviction again is not the same thing as absolutism. No. So I think no. making that distinction is important. Martin yeah. Luther has this great line, you've heard it many yeah. times, sin boldly. Yeah. He tells that to his colleague, uh, Philip Melanchthon, right. who is trying to figure out how to deal with people who are coming through their town of Wittenberg and essentially attempting to to incite uprisings yeah, based on the revelations kind of yeah, they yeah. claim they've had. And and Luther says, when you act, sin boldly, but believe or trust more boldly still. Yeah. And I guess what I want to find is find out is when we do encounter that kind of absolutism, what do we do? If you um, encounter somebody who has an absolutist position on anything and you push on that, there's a risk that that may just fracture. But I think the people that I know and trust when I encounter these kind of absolutist statements, I say, well, wait a minute, maybe we can think about that more broadly. I kind of invite them into my own curiosity and and not just say, hey, you're wrong and counter their absolutism with ironically more absolutism, but just invite them into my own process of curiosity and questions and maybe even t- share some stories that I have that have drawn me to wonder, drawn me out of my own absolutism and questioning I, those. And in that case too, you use the word imagine. I wonder if that's it is, is to invite all of us to imagine ways of, of, exp- I would say of seeing the problem or in this case scenarios that, that might open up conversation, but it's tough. And, and, oh, yeah. and I think that sometimes it feels like, we want people to open up, and yet none of us really want to consider or reconsider our own perspective. A mark of a mature person of faith would value relationship. I think value relationship over being right. And I think there's something really mature about that perspective of saying, I honor our relationship, and, the, and the, the, that's the value that I'm really going to hold on to here. I find myself wondering, and maybe this is where we we close what if we turned our own understanding of mature faith on its head and questioned that, right? Sure. Yeah. So could there could be certainly situations where 
where imagination and curiosity and wonder have to be set aside given how dire the situation is. I don't know if there are any if there are times that really justify a kind of a kind of certitude that maybe for the most part doesn't actually contribute to the kind of faith we're talking about, doesn't contribute to the kind of well-being and community that we're talking about, but are there certain moments like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letter uh, in his in his writings talks about how when it comes to resisting the abuses and injustice of the state we can first of all remind the state of its obligation to sure. to and responsibility to make sure that justice is served to secondly bandage the victims under the wheel of the state. But third, he says, there are occasions where we don't just bandage victims under the wheel, we put a spoke in the wheel itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, do we do that, um, recognizing as Bonhoeffer himself did, that there's no way out without guilt, that we Uh could be wrong, but at at the same time that we have to to do something? I don't know. But if if you think about kind of Bonhoeffer in that way as a model of mature faith, I mean, there's already in that built into what he's saying is there's this kind of sense of modesty. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's this kind of wondering of like, these are the actions to which I'm compelled or I feel called most fully to, even if that's sticking a spoke in the wheel, right? But that may be wrong. You know, I mean, um, and it's, it's one thingness, but I'm not absolutely sure about it. It's interesting because there are certain, there are certain degrees of that too. It's, it's easier to justify that, of course, when, for Bonhoeffer himself, when it came to his involvement in Operation 7 and getting Jews yeah, out of Nazi right, Germany right, right. into Switzerland. Like human life but, is at stake. Yeah, and, and at the same time, he wrestles with the, the fact that once he finds himself involved in the assassination plot to take Hitler's life, the Valkyrie plot, which ultimately failed, obviously, now we're talking about taking another human life. And obviously, this human life is is one that is reprehensible and one that is that is costing millions of people their lives. But at the same time, it's still a human being. And so Bonhoeffer wrestles with that too. So there's an interesting te- tension there, though, I mean, between this like bold action and then also ethical wrestling. Like he right. acted pretty boldly and decisively, but right. then also was like, oh, is that the right thing? Right. I mean, there's, you know, right. some modesty or humility, I think, in that too. I wonder if that, that, that struggle is finally the, the ultimate expression of a mature faith. I mean, Jesus himself seems sure. to bear that wow. struggle in, totally. in Gethsemane yeah. before he goes that's to nice. the cross. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that, that struggle that, that we uh, find ourselves experiencing when it comes to, to moral decision-making and when it comes to our understanding of uh, trusting God and how we relate to well, God. Well, and I would say this is part of, you know, the magic of the Reverend Dr. Daniel Peterson is here we are back at Jacob, right? I mean, this is where we started, uh, this right. <laughs> wrestling with God. There's this wisdom and maturity and that capacity to have a relationship with God with whom I can wrestle. The mature faith of a Reverend Dr. Daniel Peterson would be one that says at this point, Let's hope perhaps, for Star Wars quote. Star Wars quote. Perhaps I was going with I was going to with Luther that perhaps I may have been right at one point, but I am nothing otherwise than stinking maggot fodder. <laughs> yeah. So no Star Wars quote. But but uh, but or but, the apocryphal story about the note that was in his robe when he died. You know the, the last we are all beggars. We're beggars. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's something. I don't know if he actually did that, but I kind of like that. Sentiment. I think people all 
all the time have incredible insights. And, and yet, as long as they don't get caught up in how great they are for, for those insights, because the insights really happen to us. They don't yeah, come yeah, from that's us. that's true. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, uh, hopefully uh, some of the things I've said have been helpful, but in the end, I am nothing. Yeah. Well, that'll be a podcast for another topic, too. We'll talk about... Uh, mortality and being nothing. Perfect. <laughs> so on that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Pastor hey, Mark thanks Griffin. for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Dan.